0: Well, we're in Revelation chapter 2 today. Oops. Let's move some stuff around here. I should have gotten this ready beforehand. But I'm not that smart. Revelation chapter 2 today. Um, and in case you don't remember what happened in the last chapter, um, it was kind of just a starter for this book. Um, but... We're coming to Revelation chapter 2 And we waste no time getting into uh, The most important and pressing matters From Christ um, So we'll read we'll read through the whole chapter the, This chapter is a little longer Than um, most, I think But we'll read through the whole chapter And then uh, I will go back through it again with some notes and things uh, to think about. Sound good? Okay. Revelation chapter 2. Um, yes, let's start in verse number 1. It says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write... These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them, which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, um, which I'll explain in a little bit who they are and what they practice, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit saith unto the churches to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and last which was dead and is alive. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear, with the spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, These things saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges I know thy works And where thou dwellest Even where Satan's seat is And thou holdest fast my name And hast not denied my faith Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful Martyr who was slain among you Where Satan dwelleth But I have a few things against thee Because thou hast there Them that hold the doctrine of Balaam Who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornications. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, um, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, And will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. And unto the angel of the church in uh, Thyatira, I could be saying that name wrong, Thyatira, write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works. And the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds." And I will kill your children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thy- Thyatira, as many as have known this doctrine, which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star, and he, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit, saith unto the churches. So there's a lot to unpack here, and I'm going to try my best to... Um, explain every single thing that uh may seem kind of confusing. But before I do, do you have any questions on anything that you've read that you just that stuck out to you and you're just like, well it says here What I said yesterday, or what I said last time? Oh, last Friday, I that was oh yeah, yeah. <coughs> his, his words are two edged sword. It, um, that? Like that, but it. Yeah, it will bring that up multiple times, and so we'll, we'll read that several other times. Um, but yeah, it says that um, in verse, whichever verse it was. Yeah, I don't remember where it was, but um, I do remember reading it. <coughs> but we're going to go back through it again, and we'll read it again. So, Obviously, chapter 2 takes place right after the start of this vision um, that John is seeing on the Lord's Day. And it has already shown John some pretty insane symbolism of, of the intensity and uh, powerful cause of Jesus Christ towards his completion of the world and of life as, as we know it. He sees Jesus between seven candlesticks in this last chapter probably on lampstands which we were told was to represent the seven churches uh, in which John will be writing this letter to or these letters to uh, holding seven stars in his hand which Revelation 120 tells us is to represent the seven angels of those seven churches Um, now we come to this chapter which highlights the first four churches in which John is writing these letters to Um, what they are doing and why it's wrong plus how to fix those specific things to be more fruitful and to be more purposeful for what the churches are supposed to be for and to be righteous for the Lord. Churches today are still struggling like many of these churches mentioned in these next couple chapters in the same way as these churches were suffering. Nothing has changed very much. It goes to show that sin is not generational. It's not based off of how you were raised. It's not uh, uh, you know, it doesn't skip a generation. It's 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 throughout every generation, and it's inevitable. Rather than generational, and even in the churches, we are going to see sin creep in. Uh, it's gonna it's gonna slowly find its way in, and the devil will trick even those that claim themselves to be Christian. Or he'll try his best anyway. Um, and we are stupid people, and we'll fall for it pretty much every time. But Christ has the fixed he has uh, the turnaround so let this also be noted that when I mention the churches throughout this lesson I am referring to the people um, more specifically not just the building and not just these specific churches though I will be talking about these four churches that he talks about here but I want to I want to also relate it to the people to us. So when I say, you know, the church the church today should be doing this, I'm talking about the people today, the Christians today, those that acclaim themselves to Christ, not just the building. When we preach to a crowd of 20 or, or 20,000, uh, we are only preaching to one uh, because the assembly of believers are striving together with one heart, and that's the heart of Christ. So let's get into verse number one. <clears throat> Which says, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, so this church is in Ephesus. This letter that, that this is being written to, this particular part, is for the church in Ephesus. Um, and during that time, right now, there is no church in Ephesus. I mean, there. I'm sure there's churches in Ephesus, but uh, not this particular church is in Ephesus anymore. Because of how long ago this was written, things have changed dramatically in Ephesus. You can go visit Ephesus still today, but there's not much there. Most of it's destroyed. I would love to go to Ephesus because that's that's where most of Paul did his ministry um, and that was where Timothy's ministry was was in Ephesus and it's where his church started and you know there's a lot of like colosseums and stuff. Yeah. There's houses and stuff, but most of most of the biblical things that you can find is all kind of rubble. And they're still there, but they're just all falling apart because um, they're so old. But this, this particular part in this particular verse from, from verses 1 uh, to verse 7 is written to the church of Ephesus. And obviously, the one that is speaking in this verse telling John to write is Jesus. He's, Jesus is saying this is what you need to write these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks as we read in the first chapter we knew that that was Jesus if you have a red letter Bible which I don't this is I mean there's no red letters in this it's all black but if you have a red letter Bible I don't know if you do or not it will, it will be red because those are the words of Jesus everything that's written in red is Jesus' words Um, So that makes it a little bit easier to interpret that. Um, But it makes sense. It makes the most sense gathered from the previous verses equating to this one that this is Jesus speaking. Anytime Jesus speaks, it is wise for us to listen intently and pay very close attention to what he's saying. When Jesus speaks, every single time, if you read through the Gospels, every single time Jesus speaks, he speaks to that specific person or those specific people but it, it impacts everybody. From that person to all of eternity, everyone is impacted by his words, always. Uh, it makes a huge difference when he's speaking. Um, but um, it's, it's wise to listen, even if it's in the form of a revelation. Um, which brings us to verse 2. It says, I know thy works. Jesus knows the works of this church. He says, I know, th- I, I know thy works and, and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Uh, Christ starts off by admonishing this church. He, he he shows what he appreciates about the church. He displays those things. I know what you're doing. I know you're doing these things, and you're doing these things right. So this is a good thing to be said about a church. A church should stand strong in their doctrine and and faith and, and be cautious Towards anyone that would try and preach heresy or falsity as opposed to the doctrine of the Bible, in our generation and in our churches, a good leader will always point out, and encourage, and admonish those that he leads. It's good for churches that are doing well to hear that they are doing well. When we when we see a um, a preacher or even our our own pastor, for instance, and we go we are at a big church, so it can kind of get lost in translation. But when we know. That our pastor is doing something right and he's doing something well it's good for him to hear that it's it's it encourages him it helps him to do better next time and it helps him to continue on doing better um and believe it or not our church may be big and there might be a lot of people but he's not going to hear as much encouraging words as you might think <laughs> there's a lot of people that go up to him afterwards and say oh i appreciate your pastor or you know it was a good message or whatever but um, there needs to be people that, that encourage him in, in the sense of, like, we love you, we're praying for you, um, do you need anything? You know, they don't hear that kind of stuff. In fact, I believe they hear, hear a lot more about the bad things that they did, or you, you messed up on this verse, or you said this, but that doesn't make any sense. You know, Show me in the Bible where it says that, or you, know, you said that we shouldn't have TVs on our walls, and you know, I don't agree with that. And, you know, that, that that's all brought up a lot more than, than, than showing love. And, but Jesus here to the, this church, he's showing them what, he, what they're doing right. And, and he's showing a proper way that a leader should do things and, and, admonish the church, admonish the Christians, admonish those that are doing good things, not just bad things. He would only be the bearer of bad news, but would help those that are doing something that isn't quite right by showing them love and acknowledge those things that they have already done that was right that is the that is the lineage, that is the way things should go that's the way we should process every individual being is by showing what they did right before we show what they did wrong and then verse 3 he continues on in the admonishment, he says and has borne and has patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted strength in difficult times, granted, during this time in Ephesus, it was a very difficult time. So strength in difficult times is a very lost commodity today. We are weak people. We have become extremely weak people. During this time, churches were literally being burned down. People were being burned at the stake or stoned to death or, or even crucified for their faith in Jesus Christ. And... Jesus is, is letting them know that their strength has not gone unnoticed, that they haven't fainted in their faith, and that is important that they're continuing on. Uh, but it's a lost commodity. They're strong for false doctrine, these churches today, uh, but you hardly see any pushing against the cultural norms of of homosexuality or genderism today. We, we like to kind of stay distant from that because we don't want to start any fights or arguments because... I mean, genuinely speaking, when you do talk about those things, you're always going to find somebody that wants to just beat you over the head because they believe in a different way instead of having some sort of civil discourse or conversation. With that said, strength certainly is a virtue of patience. And I'd argue to say that without patience, you're probably as weak as they come. You cannot have strength without patience. When this church labored, it was not through necessity but it was through their heart's desire to please and love others in the same way which Christ pleased and loved others with patience. But that brings us to verse 4, which says, Nevertheless, Jesus says, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. There was much to admonish this church over, but they lacked in one very important area that many have crumbled under today it's the exact same thing that we face problems with in the church today this is a major issue with this church age in which we live in we see some who are extremely zealous to fight against the cultural norms uh, to fight against things that are false and things that are wrong and and their, their, their mindset's good they stand up for truth and doctrine and, and they have courage during trying in difficult times, but those same few have no love for the Lord. They they have a knowledge of the Lord, and they know what they're supposed to be doing, and they know how to do it, and they continue to thrive and strive for those things, but their heart's not with God. I, how? I don't know, <laughs> but it is possible, apparently, and this church suffered from it. This church in Ephesus suffered from it, and I believe that a lot of Christians today yeah, yeah, suffer yeah, from yeah. it. Having a heart for God and not having any works, well, God does say that uh, um, he, I think it's, it's in one of the Old Testament books, one of the prophecies. Uh, he says um, He says, "You, you, you honor me with your, with your lips and with your works, but your hearts are far from me." Well, if you love God, you're going to know Him. And that's, that's the most important part. Have a hard time. Some have a hard time sure. That, I mean, that's what the church is for. And that's what that's what this Bible study is for, is to build up for things like that. Guilty, like you probably don't. You probably should. <laughs> 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 but at the same time, um, I mean... It, it all depends on. I mean, I think of. I think of Eva. She probably wouldn't like me saying this, and it's being recorded, so that's even worse. Um, but, but she did, she doesn't ever read her Bible. Um, she used to read it all the time, and then everything you know that happened with ministry, she just she just doesn't not do it anymore. And uh, I try to encourage her to do it, and I even try to read it with her, um, but she just doesn't have that, that fervency to do it. Now, does that mean she's not saved? Does that mean she doesn't love God? I don't believe that for a second. She shows a completely different side of of that in regards to to her faith in God. Um, But, I mean, she feels convicted that she doesn't read her Bible as often as she should or as she used to, Um, and that's a good thing. That means that that God is still working on her. So if she didn't feel convicted, then we have a little bit of a problem. Um, But um, obviously... There are other means to that. Some people are readers. Some people are listeners. And that's just how it goes sometimes. So um, you are not a reader. <laughs> a I might not be as good of a listener. <laughs> that might be the problem. But, um, but we, should, we should be desiring to read his word. And that's not as important as having the heart for God. You know, and and what he's pointing out here with this church is they had these works, they were studying their Bibles, they were preaching God's word, they were praying as often as they could, they were helping people, but they were doing it without loving God. And and it's possible to do that. It's possible to have a ministry where you are working for God and not loving him. Their hearts were far from them. They lost their first love. Their first love. When you when you become a new creature you have a, a new a new life you're born again right uh, you when you accept Christ you you have a completely different birth it's the second birth but everything you did in the past is erased that's all gone that's why when you're born again you fall in love with Jesus he's your first love whether you have are married or not Jesus is your first love and when you're doing ministry you're doing ministry with the intent to love Jesus. And there are so many churches today and apparently during this time that don't have that first love. They they're striving and they're thriving and they're doing the right things but they don't love God. And Jesus knows that. And so Jesus has John here writing a letter reminding them you need to love me. Uh, it goes not having, having love for God, and, and you can mean well, and you can do these right things, and you can be part of the Lord's army, and, but we have no room to hate our enemies. We have no room to, to, uh, to cause divisions or to, to keep people out of the church because they are bad people or they don't agree with your viewpoint or whatever the case may be. You cannot hate other people. We don't have room to do that. And I think that a lot of people that, that don't have a heart for God, they're zealous and they're right. They, they, they're, they're right in their doctrine, they're right in their preaching, but they make so many enemies because they're right and everyone else is wrong. And that's not right. That's not okay. That's the wrong spirit to have. You can be right, yes, but you can also rejoice and love other people. That's, those things can walk hand in hand. They don't have to be separate but we don't get an opportunity to hate others. We don't get an opportunity to even hate our enemies, those people that are against us or that have uh, caused divisions with us or have have caused problems with us. We don't get to hate them. It goes against the mandate set forth through Jesus Christ when we are literally commanded by him to love even our enemies and pray for them that hate us. In Matthew 5, 44, Jesus says, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. We are to love everybody, including our enemies, and we're supposed to show that forth even in our churches. This church may have shown patience and love towards others, but their hearts were not toward God. They may have shown a Christ-like attitude in their ministries, but they were not ministering for the Lord. There's a great deal of difference between working ministry for the people and working ministry for the Lord. And I have reason to believe that most ministers in today's age, in modern era, have gotten this mixed up and have fallen out of love with the Lord and his work. And because of that, we see a lot of people fail in ministries and a lot of churches kind of just sit idle. Um, They don't grow and there's not a lot of people. Then the people that they do get, if they do grow are usually hateful people they're not people that you want to be around uh, i think of steven anderson whoa that was weird steven anderson's in the room his presence just appeared <laughs> i think of steven anderson um, who who no he's alive <clears throat> he uh, he ha- he hates our church <laughs> he hates our pastor okay. Yes, and he's made that very known. And he has quite a bit of a following, a pretty large group of people that, that sit under his preaching. And all of those people are just as hateful as he is, just as as, as cruel and as mean as he is. And um, they all say the same exact disgusting things. I mean, he just is like a the epitome of, of having good doctrine, because a lot of what he says is not necessarily wrong or bad or false I should say it's, it's wrong and bad okay. it's not false but he's got no heart or love for the Lord and so because of that he has a bunch of people that are working the same exact way and, and this church in Ephesus is a prime example of that exact thing then that brings us to verse number 5 he says this is where Jesus gives them the correction TL tells them how to fix it he says remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works in other words go back to your salvation Go back to when I saved you. Those things that you did before that led up to your salvation when you, when you came to me in fervency because you knew you couldn't be saved without me because you knew you were destined for hell. Go back to that and then repent. Turn from your sin. Go back to loving me again and do the first works, Do what you did before and why you did it before or else I'll come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place except i repent. If you just repent. In Matthew 5.16, Jesus tells us we are light and we must let our light shine before the entire world. Matthew 5.16, it says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That is what we are called to do. That is what we're called to be. We're supposed to be light in darkness. Uh, someone once said, the dark, the darker the night, the brighter the light. We are supposed to be light during a dark sinful world. Churches are to be lighthouses for the Lord. We're supposed, the church is supposed to harness that light, is supposed to carry that light and present that light. there to glow a beacon of safety to a hurt and dying world. They're to represent comfort and love for the lost and they're to be a safe haven for Christians to establish their faith, prepare their artillery and go back out into the world of spiritual warfare, continuing to fight on. Go back out into the darkness with their light. Brighter than ever before. It's a place of refreshing, equipping, and caring. But that's not how churches are most of the time. May our churches resemble such today. I've seen many churches fall apart because they have not repented and gone back to the love of Christ. They've not gone back to their first love. They are accustomed to traditions or feel forced into ministry by necessity uh, when the only thing that is necessary for, the, for, for Christ is preaching the gospel. Ministry is not necessary, it's important. We must understand that ministry without love is heresy. It's damnable heresy. And Jesus will remove a lampstand or lighthouse, as I've mentioned, when it's not fixed or taken care of. He says, I'm going to come if you do not go back to your first love, if you do not put your heart back on me, I'm going to remove your light. Your church will be non-existent. It will not be powerful. The lighthouse may still stand, but the light will no longer shine. And what a sad sight for the lighthouse to exist and not do what it was designed for. Which brings us to verse 6. It says, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Uh, the Nicolaitans were a somewhat unknown heretical group during that time. They seduced God's people to participate in. In idolatry, um, in in sexual immorality, as we will soon read, um, they have presented immorality as freedom in Christ. In First Corinthians six twelve through twenty, it says, "All things are lawful unto me." Paul says, "All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any." Meats for the belly, and the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord, and will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ, and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that... He which is joined to an harlot is one body. For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price." Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Paul essentially is saying that the people of God, those that are Christians, those that are in the church, should not be found in sexual immorality. They should not be found in in sleeping around or adulterous acts or or, um, in in modern era, probably more likely, in uh, uh, pornography or in uh, some sort of... um, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the right wording here, <laughs> uh, for, for, for church members or church ministers to be involved with other church members um, while they're married, um, to, not, to not be present and in, in, in need of that. Um, trying to be, because uh, <laughs> this is my mom I'm speaking to here, I'm trying to be kind of, um, how do I say, P.G., in the speaking of this because there's a lot of problems in today's age with this particular thing now this church in Ephesus didn't have that problem Christ was pointing out I've noticed, I've known that you are against those people that are are trying to preach this kind of doctrine, you're against those things but we'll see in the next few verses in the next churches that we'll read about this was a problem and Today it's still a problem. Whatever church house you may be a part of, Catholic churches obviously we we read about um, you know priests molesting little children and and doing things that they shouldn't be doing, and we read about those things and we think that that's just typical Catholic. That's you know that's what, but that's not just happening in cha- Catholic churches. That's happening in in Baptist churches. That's happening in Presbyterian churches. It's happening in every kind of church uh, ordinance that you can possibly think of. It happens a lot more in Catholic churches because uh, priests are not allowed to marry. So, I mean. They're fleshly, sinful people. What do you expect? Even though they try and pretend like they're not, they are. They, they, they can't help themselves. That's just in their DNA. It's their nature. So you, you tell them not to marry and you tell them not to have uh, any kind of uh, uh, reproductive. Um, <laughs> you tell them not to have sex. They're, they're going to do that thing because that is what they're designed for. And Jesus and God himself said it's not good for man to be alone. And that was for a reason because it's not good. We fall into sin when we're alone. So it's better to have somebody there with you that will that will help encourage you and edify you and build you up in the right things of God than to be alone. Uh, Paul was never married, which I find interesting because he speaks a lot about marriage and about the importance of it. But he found a way to live the life of Christ and to be a good godly Christian without having to delve into that, which is also interesting because... The Catholic Church uses Peter as their first pope, and Peter was married, so that doesn't doesn't make much sense <laughs> that's you're not allowed to marry, but Peter was married, and he was our first pope, so therefore just follow the example of Peter and not get not get married whatever Th- that's neither here nor there that's That's a side note. You can take that and do whatever you want with that but that leads us also to verse seven, which says "He that hath an ear." Let him hear what the Spirit saith under the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, a lot of people have taken this verse out of context, and um, so I want to clarify some things. First of all, the, the, this tree is not to be mistaken of Genesis' tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree was a tree that offered eternal life, to pure bodies it was the same tree that was in the garden there was this tree and then there was the tree of the the knowledge of good and evil they were told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil they were not told to eat uh, or not to eat of the tree of life this tree was there with them once humanity fell all was banned everyone was banned access to it and then it reappears in the new Jerusalem or heaven if you will it will be called soon enough but in Genesis 3.22 it speaks of it it says and the Lord God said behold the man is become as one of us after he ate the fruit to know good and evil and now lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken so he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life he said because you ate of that that tree you now know the difference between good and evil we're going to kick you out of the garden because we do not want you to touch the tree of life because you're now impure you were not holy enough to eat of this tree and then in Revelation 22 it comes back up it says and he shewed me a pure river of water of life crystal is clear proceeding out of the throne of God and of the lamb in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life which bear 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were of the healing of the nations. Um, I've had some different talks about this particular verse. That's just chapter 22 verses one and two, but I've had different talks about this particular verse in regards to why the tree of life is in eternity, why it's in heaven, why it would even matter why it still bears fruit. Everyone's dead. So why would you need eternal life from this, this tree? Um, but I don't think it gives you eternal life. <laughs> yeah, you've already, you've already received eternal life as soon as you accept Christ. So that tree is not there for you to receive eternal life. Um, it is there um, as... It could be there as a reminder, or it could be there because Jesus is the tree of life. He gives us the fruit that we need for salvation. So um, everything in heaven is Jesus-centric, so... So that tree might be there for that specific reason. But we know that those that put their faith and trust into Christ, repenting of their sins, are offered eternal life. As Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. They have eaten from the tree, as Christ would call himself, the vine, and are then granted eternal life for good from that moment forever. I believe the tree of life was put in the garden for that specific purpose because it represented Jesus Christ. Um, and when it was taken away from them, that re- represented the fall of man, that resep- resented, that resembled the, the, the separation of man and God. And then, <coughs> as after verse 7, we read verse 8, says, he's switching gears, he's switching to another church. He says, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things Say at the first and the last which was dead and is alive. We know who the first and the last is. We know the one that was dead and came back to life is Jesus Christ. This is what he's writing. This is what he's saying. Verse 9. I know thy works in tribulation, in poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. You may not have much in this life. <laughs> and these people didn't. They were uh, in poverty and in tribulation. But Christ says they were rich. And we may not have much in this life, but if we have Christ, we can be material, materially poor but spiritually rich. I'd rather have nothing from this world with Christ than to have everything in this world without Christ. And he's reminding them that you are living in poverty and the, the, your, the, the current city you're living in is causing you to to, to live in a very uh, tumultuous time, a very terrible time, um, but you're rich still. And in verse 10 it says fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer behold the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried and ye shall have tribulation ten days be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life so he's warning them obviously this church in Smyrna was doing things well they were doing things right Um, Jesus didn't say I have somewhat against thee he just warned them They were being mistreated during this time by the Roman government, which most churches were. Uh, And the Romans were trying to find any reason possible to destroy this church in heinous and sometimes inhumane ways. The church was faithful even through these great tribulations, even though the the government was trying to suppress them and trying to get rid of the churches. Churches that remain faithful through great trials and testings are stronger than any churches with maybe even thousands of members sitting comfortably. Give me a church that's been through major grief, that's still continuing to strive for the love of Christ, and I guarantee you will see God's blessings upon it, and you will meet some of the strongest, gentlest Christians in the world. They, they seem to be the most knowledgeable and most uplifted spirits ever to have existed, and they've gone through some of the most terrible things From their government, or from other people, or from their city, or whatever it might be, the crown of life that's spoken of here is not a gift solemnly given to us. We are granted with life, everlasting life, and that is a crown we can wear. But those we uh, we may receive, we may receive these crowns for the things that maybe we have achieved in this life. But those crowns give us access to the one that truly deserves it for without him we would not be worthy to receive such amazing heavenly rewards and those crowns belong to him and it's because um, we get those crowns that's why we uh, are told that we're going to lay our crowns down at his feet uh, when we enter into eternity those crowns that we received do not belong to us We may have received them, but it was only because of Jesus that we received them. It was only because of his spirit and his guidance and his work that we were able to get these crowns to begin with. Verse 11 says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. If you are a born-again Christian, you don't have to worry about the second death, which we will get into later on. Verse 12, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. There's that, that saying again, the, the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. But it's a good idea to make sure you are behind the blade cutting rather than being cut. His word can wound and it can heal. Our words can wound and it can heal. In Proverbs, it says that the, that the tongue has the power of life and death. That should make us think before we speak, should it not? So we should be dividing the word in such a way that wounds and heals at the same time, tears down and builds up, one without the other, I think is detrimental and dangerous. Then verse 13, says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. Uh, the reason that um, uh, Pergamum is is um, labeled the site of Satan's throne, that's why he says the seat of Satan, is referring to Pergamum, um, which is the church that is being written to right now. Um, it's labeled as the site, the site of Satan's throne, and it's because they made temples that were dedicated to worshiping false idols. There was literally this whole city was just dedicated to fake gods, um, and they had whole buildings dedicated to fake gods. This is something like you would see, like a, like the Sphinx in Egypt. You know that the big uh, pyramid with the the cat head hanging out of it. That was a that was a false god, and they built an entire building to that false God and that the idea of that false God they um, had a uh, um, a temple for Augustus and uh, Roma uh, one for um, Asclepios which is the god of healing um, and even an altar dedicated to Zeus who uh, has been known for you know more modern mythology um, regards to Hades and Zeus you know brothers fighting against each other um, but in the middle of all of this false worship, in the middle of all of these buildings that were made specifically for different gods, a believer named Antipas came to tell them the truth of Christ and used God's word to do it. And, but when they heard this, apparently, according to this verse, they killed him because they didn't want to stop worshiping their false gods. They didn't want to serve a god that can control all gods but he was labeled as a faithful witness by Jesus Christ. He says, uh, the faithful martyr who was slain among you. Then in verse 14, it says, but I have a few things against thee. So I know that you've done these things, and I know you're in a very difficult area where there's people you know, that are worshiping false gods, but here's, here's a few things that I have that are against you. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornications. Now we're going back into Old Testament prophecy and to Old Testament times. Balaam was a real person who lived during the time of the Old Testament and uh, set up gods for people. And he was a prophet, um, but Balaam was an Old Testament prophet who advised Moab's king to tempt Israel into sexual and spiritual adultery. In Numbers 25, one through two, it says, and Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab, and they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods, their false gods. In Numbers 31, 16, it says, uh, Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So after Balaam d- did these... Th- terrible things and, and cause these people to do these terrible things. There was a great plague that encompassed the entire community and it was not much different than what we're facing today, although um, these plagues were a lot more uh, ferocious and deadly than what we are having today. But obviously uh, the Nicolaitans were causing others to dip into this same model of worship. Christ points out that the church here is allowing such practices to start infecting the congregation, is allowing it into the church. And this is why he has a few things against them. God takes note of all church leadership and doctrine. If you're teaching falsities or uh, you're not filled with the Spirit, God will not leave that unchecked. And he will not allow you to do it without conviction. All of these people in these churches knew that it was not okay to do these things, and yet they continue to do it anyway. And then verse 16, it says, Repent. Um, or else, actually, let's read verse fifteen real quick. So, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of thy mouth, of my mouth. This is interesting. Jesus is threatening this church. So repent, or I'm coming to to destroy you. Uh, repent, or the sword in which I am bearing through my word is going to destroy you. Uh, imagine being a church that loves the Lord and has so much adultery around it, literally buildings of ad- uh, idolatry, not being able to connect with the culture because they don't want to believe in the God in which you're teaching them, which is the true God. So you decide to incorporate some of the other church's beliefs. That way others feel comfortable coming into your congregation. The problem is a church is not a house for other people's beliefs. It's a place where people go to worship the God of the Bible and the God of the Bible only. It's a place that Jesus died for. Not so that we can incorporate beliefs, but so that we can worship his death for it. Jesus is justified to threaten this church for their beliefs and their falsities. And any churches that would practice such disgraceful worship and the church should never take lightly the threatening of the Lord. In First Corinthians 11.30, it says, For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Be chastened by God. Verse 17 says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone, a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. There's a lot of symbolism here. Um, just th- like God gave manna to Israel in the wilderness, Christ supplies hidden manna to the ones who conquer uh, these, these kinds of trials and these kinds of, of sin. A white stone um, is representative of what was given uh, during that time to winners of of athletic contests to gain entrance to banquets uh, afterwards. So when people that won athletic competitions would get a white stone, and that white stone was their invitation to a banquet that they would get to eat at um, and be a part of because they won. White stones were supposedly used by jurors during that time to vote for acquittal as well. So if you received a white stone, you were acquitted, and you didn't have to you know, pay for your crimes or anything like that. That white stone apparently, supposedly, represented your freedom. (coughs) These are obviously rewards of eternal blessings, as Jesus gives here. The new name is given to every believer that trusts in Christ alone for salvation um, alone and doesn't worship anyone but God alone your your name is then written down you get a new name and we can sing a song or a hymn like uh, there's a new name written down in glory and it's mine oh yes it's mine There's a new name that's written down it's a new name that's given christ christ gives his believers a new name because we are new creatures though people may have always known you by that name we always knew you by denise when you become saved your name changes drastically it's no longer associated with the sins of your past it's associated with Bible thumper and maybe even Jesus freak which to me I think is far better than liar or fornicator. We should desire a new name and when we trust Christ he gives it to us and all things are new. As Romans eight twenty nine says, says for whom he did foreknow he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. A new name written down in glory. Then Verse 18, it says, And unto the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. This is how we know that Jesus was the one being spoken about in chapter 1 because he literally calls himself the Son of God here um, and refers to those things that we saw. In chapter 1, in verse 19, it says, I know thy works in charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. This is the part I'm not excited to talk about. Um <laughs> I'm not excited to talk about it with anybody, but specifically with my mom, but maybe notice that these churches seem to be doing things that were pleasing to the Lord. Every single one of them had good things said about them. But they were ruining all of those good things because of a sin they were committing against him as well. They start off strong and then turn away to idols and false doctrine. Nothing has changed in the churches today. We have so many different branches of each religion because the same problems still consist and will consist when the end of times comes as we know it. same exact issues that these churches faced back then are the same ones that we face today, and will continue to face. Uh, Apparently, I don't know if these churches will be uh, in these specific spots when when the world ends, but if they are, they're going to face the exact same problems as we're still facing even now. But this is a good symbolization of the churches now, uh, of the churches in the future, uh, of the churches that will eventually come to be Um, Not just specifically these churches that are written about here, but all churches from then on out. In verse um, 20, 21, it says, And I gave her space, speaking of Jezebel, the prophetess, I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Verse 23, it says, And I will kill her children with death, Actually let me let me just let me pause for a moment. Yeah, verse twenty three And I'll kill her I'll kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give to every one of you according to your works. Yes. The children in which is spoken of here is not blood related children, it's not her actual children, it's not, you know, ones she gave birth to. Her children represent those that she has influenced that of her church uh, just like John calls his churches his children through the faith of God who were taught and brought up um, by John's faith and witness by his preaching Jezebel is acclaiming the same name to her church as well they're, they're her children but she's teaching them false doctrines and abusing the people at, of at church um, for sexual gain sadly this too is a common problem in churches today very common problem. Um, There was actually not that long ago, there was a church that was um, somewhat close to us in Texas where the uh, youth pastor of that church particular church, it was a Baptist church, um, was caught um, having relationships with teenagers. Um, There are pastors in the pulpit today who uh, will end up leaving their wife and uh, marrying someone from the congregation because of adultery. Um, there is uh, someone, a friend from my past, who uh, became a Buddhist, and he posted on um, Facebook not that long ago that that Jesus saves, and he was wearing a cross and Christ on the cross, and um, which took me took me back. I thought that's that's crazy, and. Uh, Eva messaged him and asked him about his faith and his doctrine, and and he, she would really like to know his testimony, and and he came back with, um, I'm writing a book about it, which to me, if you're saved, you just explain how you were saved. You don't need to write a book about about it. That seems kind of extreme. And you'll find out. Yeah, that's that's like, your salvation is not about you. You know, you know that right? But. Uh, I just kind of just blew it off. I just I told her I said that's that's weird, uh, and then we just kind of blew it off. Well, he posted some pictures. Uh, a couple days later, um, talking about Jesus, and uh, he put hashtags in it, and in the hashtags, it started off with like Jesus saves hashtag Jesus saves, and then hashtag. Um, in love with Jesus, and then it said hashtag hard for Jesus, and then it said hashtag bend me over daddy Jesus and then it said hashtag, and it got really, really weird and then we saw another post that said the same kind of things, and it got like really disgusting and disturbing and um, and it was just like (laughs) obviously something's wrong, (laughs) obviously he's either not saved, which obviously he's not saved, but he's either confused about salvation, or he's just being really stupid and just making fun of Christianity. I don't think that's what's happening. I think he's I, I think he's a drug addict. So I think a lot of that has messed with his mind, so he is really thinking about Jesus in that way and that's a problem. That's an issue. That's apparently a lot there's churches that are like that as well that that think in that same kind of context that we have a love relationship or an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and that's not at all. How it's supposed to be and I know that Jesus calls us his bride and I get that but we're supposed to be pure like a bride we're supposed to be without flaw without uh, we're supposed to be uh, uh, without um, fornication we're supposed to be clean and we're supposed to be um, you know a specific way as a, as a bride is supposed to be uh, but we see many pastors and youth pastors alike using the church for for sexual gain and and not for pointing people to, to Jesus the house of God is established as a holy sanctuary of worship. That is what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be us worshiping God. We must be zealous about the house of God to keep it that way. And and, and when we see something that is not right happening, uh, when we see people that, that claim to be Christ followers and then, and then post things like, like they do on, on social media that just doesn't line up with the things of God, it makes God look terrible. It makes Jesus look awful, and it should not be go... Uh, be gone without something being said. We must have the same righteous anger as Christ did. It should make us sick. Matthew twenty-one twelve. Jesus Jesus going into the temple of God, it says, And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables and of the money changers... And the seats of them that sold doves, and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. God's house suffers from the thieves that still try and fill their pockets today with the exact same kinds of flaws and, and things. They they desire a paycheck rather than desiring to preach. Preaching is all part of it, but simply because the church is paying him is not a good reason to preach how i wish and long that the ministers saw the church in this proper light in the way that that christ does it's a place of worship it's a place of prayer it's a house of prayer jesus calls it and we've turned it into a den of thieves we've turned it into a a place to just make money and and be noticed and and get on a pedestal and have people hear our voices and that's not okay and it's definitely not okay to use it as a means for for sexual gain as a lot of churches have done. In verse 24, it says, But unto you I say, and unto the rest in uh, Thyatira, Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, the doctrine of Jezebel, those that don't follow Jezebel, in other words, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. (laughs) In other words, Christ knows that they have enough problems to deal with. (laughs) And Christ will give them power to deal with those problems. Extra burdens are given to those that are not focused on the right thing. That being Christ. If you are a minister or if you're ministering or if you're doing something for the Lord and you feel extra burdened, you're probably doing something wrong. The only time you should have extra burdens is because people with burdens are coming to you. But we should be able to cast those burdens at Jesus' feet Because his burden is the only burden we need. It's the only burden we're told to pick up. It's the only burden we're told to actually carry with us. And so the burdens of the church are brought on by people that are not using the church for the proper contexts. And those that are burdened with the church won't have any extra burdens to carry. Christ says, I'm not going to burden you with anything more. I'm going to help you out. In fact, in verse 25 it says, but that which you have already, hold fast. Till I come. In other words, it's a wild ride. Christ has supplied us with our needs. He's telling us to hold fast to those things that were already given to us through him. Hold fast. I love those two words, and I love it when God uses those words. God uses the term hold fast a lot through his book, and it's wise to listen to those things that he repeats Continuously in 1 Thessalonians 5.21 he says prove all things hold fast that which is good Hebrews 10.23 says let us hold fast the profession of our face without faith without wavering for he is faithful that promise Proverbs 4.13 says take fast hold of instruction and, her, and let her not go keep her for she is thy life Job 27 6 Job says my righteousness I hold fast and will not let go my heart shall not reproach me so long as I live Second Timothy 1 13 uh, Paul tells Timothy hold fast the form of sound doctrine and sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus Hebrews 4 14 says seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens Jesus the son of God let us hold fast our profession Hebrews 3 6 but Christ is a son over his own house whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end hold fast to sound doctrine to true doctrine to sound teaching to proven things hold fast to that which is good and pure and right hold fast to faith to preaching to reading and exhorting hold fast to prayer and fellowship and love hold fast to it until we see Christ come hold fast is what Jesus tells these people at this church to do you're suffering with them but hold fast in verse 28 or 26 it says and he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end to him will I give power over the nations I don't think I need to explain this but there's going to be a time when we reign with Christ during the end and in those particular times uh, we're going to have Great power. We're going to have power like as unto Christ, but Christ will still obviously be the King of kings, Lord of lords. His power will always surpass ours and supersede ours, and uh, Satan desired to have that kind of power and will not be given it, um, which we'll find out what happens to him as we continue on with with this study. Um, But verse 27 says, And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter, shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And then verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. The morning star is Christ. To put it in simple terms. (laughs) The morning star in which he's speaking of is Christ. He is ruler and rescuer. He was predicted uh, to rise by Balaam, as a matter of fact. In Numbers 24, verse 17, it says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheph. Those that conquer the trials and false doctrines are promised everything about Christ. They're promised Christ. It's promised to these people in these churches, but we, too, get to read these accounts and take these promises upon ourselves. We get to keep these same exact promises. We must endure such false teachings, false religions, and false ideologies of modern culture which try their hardest to sway people away from the church. Though many churches suffer from false preaching and doctrine, there are some who don't. And those that are in the church that know the truth must take charge in in leading others in the same truth, holding fast to the words of Christ. The Bible is a book of salvation. To kind of leave this off in a more (laughs) uplifting tone, the Bible is a book of salvation. This book, this, this revelation is no different. In fact, there's a lot more talk about salvation in this book than there is probably in the rest of the entire Bible, which is saying something, because this is about the end times, right? Through its words, page after page, you will not find anything but the salvation of the Lord. That is what the book is. That's what the Bible does. You will see God save, and those that are saved receive the morning star. Uh, they, 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 they receive Christ. That's, that's what we receive. What's what we achieve. Those things, those that keep to God's word alone as instruction and hold this whole book in high reverence will be able to stand strong in the last days, which leads me to verse 29, last verse. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. If we have an ear to hear these things, then there is no reason we should not be taking them to heart and following through with them. If we understand what is being read and what is being taught, There is no reason for us not to use it. James 1.22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. When we are only hearing the word and we're not doing what is told, we deceive ourselves. We trick ourselves. We make ourselves think that we're doing something right when we're not. We must be doing what we hear, not just hearing it. Any questions, comments, concerns, or complaints? Stop this.